You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Great to have you here and great to see you. And it's a pleasure to introduce Kathy Scott Clark to talk about her book, The Exile. Thank you. So I'm going to do a kind of 25, 30 minute presentation, which is based around pictures, just to kind of bring it all to life because um, it's, it was a complicated story and there are a lot of people involved and um, it's kind of. I'll tell you the sort of behind the scenes of how the, this book came together. So the idea initially um, was to try and put together, as far as possible, a comprehensive picture of Osama bin Laden's kind of life and activities post 9/11 up until his death, and um, and focus really on kind of getting Al Qaeda's story, the story from within. So I wanted to talk to the family, um, his children, his um, wives who survived him and um, also attempt to talk to some people who'd been part of Al-Qaeda. So we're on the sort of council, the Shura council. Um, so this was actually my wall when I was writing the book. Um, and I gradually put pictures up of people as I kind of either got to them or they died or they were impossible to reach. And, I mean, quite a few of these people will crop up in the talk. I'll just go through it. Um, so this is Tora Bora, where Osama bin Laden was last seen after 9-11, he withdrew to his mountain res- re- re- retreat and um, his family had been made to live with him um, here um, in the 90s before 9-11 um, in some pretty um, basic accommodation. He lived in a cave w- went and went through this entrance and um, had, he was all right. He had quite a nice setup um, inside his cave uh, where he used to do his um, press conferences and invite journalists from the West to come and have a chat um, the wives and the children didn't have quite such a nice um, setup. This is one of the wives' um, huts. Um, this all precedes 9/11. This is before kind of things really hotted up. But they lived in very very basic accommodation. And, and I was curious to know for the wives particularly. I mean, they were all quite sophisticated women from from Saudi Arabia, and they'd grown up in in um, in villas and palaces, and, and now they were living in this kind of accommodation. These were some of the Al-Qaeda children um, from other members of the Shura who lived with the Bin Ladens prior to 9-11. These pictures were taken by a friend of mine who was a uh, Palestinian journalist who visited Bin Laden here in 1996. And then we found out in 2011 he had, met, he had survived Tora Bora, he'd survived the American war, and he'd ended up in Abbottabad, so this house um, within sight of the Pakistani military, premier military academy, um, and I think everybody was shocked and amazed and, and sh- sure that there was some complicity on the part of the Pakistani government. Um, these pictures were just taken just after the raid and he'd been killed and his three wives who were with him um, had been taken into um, custody by the Pakistanis along with several children. So I was in Pakistan at the time and the children and the wives continued to be held for several months and um, I really wanted to get to them and talk to them and find out what they'd experienced and how they'd lived and what it had been like when he had been killed. 
did they support 9-11? Were they kind of jihadis like him? Or were they just innocent victims? So <clears throat> I kept going back to Islamabad, the capital of Pakistan, um, over the next few months to do another project with the Pakistan army. And um, when I wasn't doing my official work, I was kind of sneaking around trying to work out how on earth I could get to these women who were being held in an undisclosed location, which is this place. Um, this was a government villa, um, again, quite basic. Um, the women were here when I visited, but I, at this stage I wasn't allowed to meet them. Um, I was allowed to have a walk around and um, take a couple of pictures, and then I was escorted out. Um, I was just saying before whether the, what I still wanted to kind of get back and find if I could get to the women and talk to them about what had happened, what their husband had done, um, whether they regarded him as this kind of romantic, handsome hero. Yes? What was your official work? My official work? Yeah. I was doing a, um, a film with uh, the Pakistan army in South Waziristan on their efforts to um, eradicate the Pakistan Taliban which was for Vice News. So we kind of went several times. Um, so yes, who, who was this man? I mean, we all know what he looks like. We, he's a notorious figure, thankfully now dead. But I mean, what was he like to live with and what, what, was, what was going on inside the house? Um, so after the raid that killed him, a few pictures and videos were released, which you might have seen before. Um, these are all taken by Pakistan intelligence services and sort of released to local media. This was Azama's bedroom. His his tidy cabinet surrounded by... I mean, there was chaos, obviously, because of the raid, but there was chaos in all of the women's sections of the house because they had nine children to look after, and they were never allowed to go out, and they were never allowed to throw anything away, whereas his sections of the house, so his wardrobe and his media suite downstairs, were, according to the, the Navy SEALs who were there on the night... Um, completely and utterly pristine and ordered and nobody else was allowed to go in there um, and then little bits of snippets came out about the, uh, some of the wives so this, this is the passport of his youngest wife um, Amal who is from Yemen and um, she married him a year before 9-11 and upset the rest of the family because all of his other wives were much older in fact he had children who were older than this girl and um, they were very very affronted that, that he brought this child into the household. Anyhow, she left her passport behind and some of her jewellery. This is a not very nice picture. So that is his son, um, Khalid, who was in the house and basically acted as his secretary and did all his filing and sent some of the letters which went out via couriers. Um, he was killed with his father. And that picture was taken by the um, intelligence services, Pakistan intelligence services, and released to the local media. But it became rapidly clear that this was not a good story for Pakistan. So um, after the initial sort of raft of information coming out, things were closed down very quickly. And the house was knocked down. And, um, and the army and the intelligence services refused to talk about anything connected to um, what had happened or accept any responsibility. So I went to Abbottabad in search of kind of information and um, from local people had, who'd gone into the house just after the raid, um, someone had picked up this, um, this uh, sensitive site exploitation card, which is what the, um, the SEALs took in with them. They had various bits of information, some photographs, um, information about who was living on what floor. Um, so this picture, the one on the right, is, is one of the two co companions who looked after Osama, who were Pakistani Kuwaiti guys, two brothers who um, stayed with him for almost a decade. 
and uh, I then went into the compound before it was um, knocked down with um, a, an intelligence, Pakistani intelligence guy who um, took some pictures. Um, this, this was the annex building where one of the brothers lived, who, the main brother who looked after Osama and the family and who did all, all of the letter deliveries and um, keeping him in contact with the rest of Al-Qaeda. He lived in this house and he was killed in this house. And uh, this, again, kind of gives a little flavour of some of the mess and, and the fact that there were 15, 18 people all together living in the main house and another four in the annex, this one. And, um, and only the, the companions went out and um, Azama did go out once or twice but everybody else was kind of housebound and didn't even go into the garden apart from Azama occasionally went in the garden. Um, so there was a lot of build-up of stuff. This is one of the kitchens. Um, I mean, it had been pretty much cleared out by the time we got there, but, um, but again, very basic kind of living, um, living conditions. And this was the main staircase that the, the seals went up. There's, you can still see the blood on the stairs where uh, the Khalid, the son, was killed on, this, on the top of this staircase here. And uh, when they brought Zama's body down, he was kind of like dragged down. He wasn't in a body bag at that stage, so... They scrubbed it up a bit, but, but it was still a little bit bloody. So things kind of took a turn for the better in terms of how to go about getting to the family. When um, this guy turned up in Islamabad, he was the younger brother of um, Amal, the youngest wife. His name is Zakaria. And the family had clubbed together to get a ticket to send him to Pakistan. And he spoke no English and he had no more money. And he had no idea of how to get his sister out from, um, from the intelligence services grip who were holding the, her um, unofficially. She hadn't been charged with anything, along with the other wives and a lot of children. So this was a picture, actually from the passport, um, of his sister. And this was a tiny, not very easy to see, um, picture when she was a teenager before she started wearing her um, abaya and her hijab. Um, so Zakaria... I put him together with this lawyer, Pakistani lawyer, and helped him a little bit because he needed help and advice. And um, I thought if, if I give him a little bit of assistance, then maybe he will help me back, which he did. Um, I wrote a big piece in the Sunday Times highlighting the fact that, the, that these children were being held in, um, in accommodation. Not bad accommodation, but they were all completely traumatised. Um, had spoken to nobody since the raid. Uh, the, the little boy in the middle... Um, who's the youngest son of um, Azama and Amal had been in the room when, she, when he was killed and had seen everything. Um, so these kids uh, were, were very traumatised and wanted to leave Pakistan. And Zakaria took this picture and gave it to me. There he is in the picture as well. Um, he also put together these strange montages. But and through him, I eventually um, did meet his sister, Amal, and um, the other wives, and I shouldn't have taken this picture because you're not really supposed to take pictures um, of um, Saudi women, especially wives of Osama. Um, and this was in Pakistan shortly before they were deported. Um, so that was just an initial meeting to kind of say hello and see whether or not they would actually be willing to tell their story or have anything to say at all. Um, they were eventually deported back to, back to uh, Saudi Arabia, all of them, including the Yemeni wife in uh, April 2012 and um, at which point I kind of tried to sort of follow through and, and see what else I could get from them because I'd had very basic chats with them and there was not much trust there and they didn't really want to tell their stories and um, 
they didn't initially have that much to say, so it kind of didn't look like we were really going anywhere with the book. But they did what they were happy to talk about was, was family stuff, and, and through the wives I then got to know some of the children, the older children of Osama, which this is a picture from much, um, <coughs> much earlier. When, this is Osama's older kids from his, his first wife. Uh, when they still lived in um, Saudi Arabia, so before he kind of really took it on himself to attack the West and target America. And I was very curious to know what their lives had been like. And this, this, the one I got on best with was Fatima, who's his eldest daughter. And this was, these are her pictures from when she was a baby um, and growing up a little bit. And it was just... I mean, I was not sympathetic to, to, to anyone connected to the family, but... I wanted to know what was the connection between what he did and what they experienced and, and were they just innocent victims or were they actually collaborators and I spent quite a lot of time with Fatima she gave me pictures of Khalid who was the one who was killed in the house that's her, her younger brother old younger brother um, that's him when, and he was a baby um, these are two of her older brothers um, Abdul Raymond on the left who suffered from water on the brain as a child and um, Osama quite famously didn't like Western medicine, so he would um, tell his wives that they couldn't take the kids to the doctors. So Abdul Rahman Rahman is um, permanently affected by what he experienced as a child, and um, it's quite a strange character. And the one on the right is Omar, who is um, the fifth son of Osama. <coughs> and at one stage, he was being groomed to be the heir. Um, to take over his or to, to take on activities along with his father, but they had a huge falling out shortly before 9 11 um, because uh, he disagreed with what his father was proposing to do. Um, and a, a picture gradually sort of came together of, of children who were made to, were, were used to benefit their father's career. So Fatima again, for example, all of the girls were, um, were forced to, to marry Al Qaeda fighters when they were 13. Um, or 12 um, she was married to this not unhandsome man but I mean he was twice her age he was, um, he was a, an Al-Qaeda militant um, of Saudi origin um, her sister all that's left of her sister Khadija who married the, the brother of this guy um, she, was, um, she had had four children sorry three children by the age of 17 and she stayed in Pakistan um, after 9-11 because her husband was on active duty. So they lived in Waziristan. And she died uh, giving birth for the fourth time to twins um, in Waziristan in, in conditions where there was no access to a doctor. So, um, and that's all that's left of her today, is her old Saudi passport, which was picked up in Karachi when Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was um, being pursued. <coughs> So some of these pictures have been in the media before, but I mean, this is another brother um, of, um, of Fatima's called Laden. He's one of the younger ones. Um, and he, he was, although he was nine at the point of 9-11, and his mother left Osama um, two days before 9-11, having given him 11 children, um, she said, look, this is just too much, too far. This has gone on too long. Too many people are being killed. I'm, I'm leaving you. And she wanted to take this son with her. And Osama said, no, he's nine, so he belongs with his father. So this kid was left um, in the middle of the war um, with, with his older siblings and his aunties and, and then didn't see his mother again for years. <coughs> this is Osama with Hamza, who is the most well-known of the sons. 
um, who's still active today and is now the new figurehead for Al Qaeda, but I'll come back to him at the end. Um, and this is another son, Khalid, who was videoed um, by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed um, when they found a heli- a, allegedly an American helicopter which had been um, destroyed, it had been downed in um, somewhere near Kandahar in November 2001 during the war. And um, in the full video, you see Mohammed sort of wandering around with a rocket launcher and Hamza's with him as well, um, praying in the middle of the rubble, saying what fantastic news this is. So they were very much, willingly or not, were made to be sort of little, little Azamas um, and play the role. Um, this was uh, Omar again when he was still with his father. This picture was taken just before Omar decided to leave Afghanistan and to cut off all contacts. Um, he went off in pursuit of... Um, a different kind of life, and bought himself a tiger cub, and, um, <clears throat> and now lives in Doha in um, Qatar with his uh, British wife, who is uh, an incredible character and um, helped a lot with the book. Um, she she had had a she'd actually been trashed by British newspapers because she was twice his age, and she'd been previously married to a Hell's Angel, and had a few tattoos. Um, so when they got together and they lived at this stage in this is after 9/11, 2006, he lived in um, she lived in Egypt and she was a, a psychologist and she treated him um, because he was struggling to come to terms with normal life. He'd lived with his father in the Al Qaeda world for forever and now was kind of rejected by the rest of the family when he went back to um, to Saudi Arabia and he's sort of flailing around, not sure what to do with himself. Um, so she helped him kind of get his head straight and um, she later on played a much uh, much more significant role in, um, in getting other members of the family freed from various locations and, and eventually they, were, um, they all joined her and her husband in, um, in Qatar which is where they live today and this, this is, um, this is uh, the pearl in Qatar where now I think there are seven of Osama's sons who live with their... I mean, they're all much older now. They live with their children and their families in government villas. Maybe this is the reason why Qatar has been struck off in the last few days. One of the reasons. Um, they live in government villas uh, with um, government cars and their shopping is done for them. It's all expenses paid. And um, one of their next-door neighbours is Saddam Hussein's wife. And um, another one is, is a sheikh from um, Egypt, who's known as the Sheikh of Death. So there's quite an interesting group of people living in a particular um, cul-de-sac in, in, in this part of um, Doha, which is here. Um, so once the story of the family was kind of up and running, um, myself and Adrian, my co-writer, we obviously didn't want to turn this into just a kitchen sink drama. We wanted to know about Al-Qaeda and what had happened to Al-Qaeda how they'd put together the, the, um, the uh, plot to um, attack America in 2001 and uh, what had happened afterwards, where they'd regrouped. So we went in search of other people who could tell other bits of the story. This guy is quite famous and notorious. Um, he was, actually he died last year. Hamid Gould, he was the former Director General of the ISI, Inter-Services Intelligence Agency, in uh, Pakistan. And he had met Azama in the 80s when there was a so- the Soviet war was going on in um, Afghanistan. And they'd formed a very close bond. And he would come to uh, play a very important role in protecting Azama in Abbottabad um, much later on. 
Um, he, he basically formed this kind of cloak of invisibility around him, um, more, much more so than, than anyone at the ISI headquarters. And then we went, um, we, we drew up a list of kind of who from Al-Qaeda is sort of still alive and not in Guantanamo, and it was quite a short list. Um, so some people we met were, were quite low down. So this, this guy was um, one of the bodyguards at Tora Bora. He's Jordanian. And he was released in about 2007, so I went to see him in Jordan. Um, he told quite an interesting story about the kind of how Zamro had escaped from Tora Bora, but beyond that, it was not really what we were looking for. We wanted something much more in-depth. So we eventually, I eventually persuaded these two characters to um, meet me in Jordan also. And the one on the left is Abu Qatada, who lived in Britain for 20 years, and he was known as, but has always denied that he was Al-Qaeda's man in Europe before 9-11. Um, and the one on the right is um, Abu Mohammed al-Makdisi, who is, uh, he was the mentor for Zakawi, Abu Musab al-Zakawi, who founded Islamic St- Al-Qaeda in Iraq and then Islamic State. Um, he met, um, they met in prison, sorry, Makdisi and Zakawi met in prison in Amman and um, kind of decided to plot against the West and formed a group together. And these two still live in Amman. Um, they both live in Amman today. It was quite a struggle to get them to meet initially, but um, once we'd got started, they were very, very chatty and, um, and um, threw a whole sort of new light on, on how Al-Qaeda had um, operated and how they'd all fought over 9-11, with most of the Shura being against um, the plot and some people... Um, actually resigning and walking out and um, leaving Azama basically with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who'd put the whole thing together who, it was his brainchild and um, many, many members of Al-Qaeda had their noses put out of joint because they said this isn't an Al-Qaeda operation but it went ahead <coughs> this is um, Husayfer Azam who is the son of Abdullah Azam who founded Al-Qaeda with, with Azam bin Laden <clears throat> he's sitting with his father's jacket that the father was wearing on the day that he was um, killed in a car bomb in 1989. But many people say by uh, Dr. Ayman Zawahiri uh, on his orders, because Zawahiri, who's now the current head of Al-Qaeda, um, latched onto Osama in the early days and, and could see that this is a sort of young and handsome and rich um, sheikh who could really help in their fight for um, attention in the world of jihad because it is a very competitive world to get, um, to get attention and funding and recruits to come to you rather than to a different group. But this, is, um, this was Abdullah Razam himself, but he died and was out of the picture from 1989. And then the, guy, the man on the left, um, who is called uh, Mahfouz Ibn al-Walid, he became um, a key source in the book. He, um, he is Mauritanian. And um, I had to look up where Mauritania was before um, approaching him because I had no idea. It's, it's in West Africa. Um, and he had been Azama's um, personal spiritual advisor and had been the spiritual advisor and godfather to, to the children, to the sons, not the daughters, um, up until just before 9-11 when he allegedly was one of the people who was completely against the, um, the operation. And he resigned from the Shura um, two months before the attacks happened. But he was doubly interesting because he had gone on to, um, to look after the family of Osama and, and the Shura members who had left Pakistan um, and gone to Iran, which is a whole kind of episode 
which has never really been kind of properly understood before. He had led the way um, and negotiated their sanctuary in Iran and um, had actually escaped from Iran in 2012, by which time we were already working on the book. And um, <coughs> he gave one interview <coughs> when he made it back to, uh, to Mauritania. He gave one interview to an Arab channel, and I contacted the, uh, the Mauritanian journalist who interviewed him, and I said, Look, do you think there's any chance we could talk to him? And he said, I have no idea, but I'll ask. And the answer came back, yes, if you come to Nouakchott, which is the capital, um, or Mauritania, then, um, then he'll meet you. And um, I was initially quite sceptical, being a woman and um, lots of reasons. But, um, and the journalist was supposed to come with me because he was based in Abu Dhabi and we were supposed to meet in Paris and then fly down to, uh, to Mauritania together. And the journalist cancelled the day before and said, I'm not coming with you. And this is in the middle of all the beheadings in, of journalists in Syria. So I, was, I nearly didn't go, but in the end... I guess curiosity got the better. And, um, and I then spent three weeks on and off interviewing him and went back several times. And he had a fascinating story um, to tell and um, is still there today. This is us with our translators in his house. And um, he got very upset when I took this picture because um, part of the deal he'd done when he got back to Mauritania and the government said, OK, we'll hold you in detention for a few months. And then as long as you meet um, a, a delegation from the American embassy and give them some information, that you're then a free man. Um, but, but you must never kind of get involved in any activities again. And um, he was actually showing me some pictures from, from Iran. And um, I'd taken something which he thought showed that he was kind of accessing the dark web. And he got very upset and said I could never use this picture. So I haven't. Um, and uh, Abu Qatada was another... Um, it, it was quite interesting, not, not funny, but interesting to see the, sort of the characters behind um, the, the names. Um, for example, he, he invited um, us to go for, um, myself and a local journalist, to go for this sort of desert lunch with some of his friends. Um, and uh, we got there, and all of his friends were very, very, um, very religious. So they weren't allowed to talk to me or even look at me, let alone shake my hand. So I had to go and sit on a table on my own. And, um, and nobody talked to me for the whole lunch. And, um, and then I tried to take a picture. And Abu got very upset and said, you can't show me, because he has a huge appetite and rather large stomach. He said, you can't show me eating, because all of the fighters in Syria who are struggling and starving and fighting will get very upset and they'll all go away and join another group. So this was just before we had lunch, <laughs> me being ignored by all these guys. Um, but... Um, Eventually, we, I mean, we, behind the scenes, when there weren't sort of uh, observers, um, they were actually um, very happy to sit down with a woman, and a Western woman, and talk about um, who, whose co-partner has got a Jewish surname, and talk about um, what they were doing and what their future plans were for what, what they'd done in Al-Qaeda and what their future plans were for Al-Qaeda and what they thought of the Islamic State. I mean, this picture was taken last December, and... Um, they were very, very open. Um, they're both very, still very, very active, particularly MacDesey, who's on the far, far left. I mean, he is sort of viewed as very much um, a voice to be listened to by both people in the Islamic State and um, in Al-Qaeda, which are now, who is the organisation is now active in Syria and Iraq. Um, but just going back to, to, tell me if I'm going on too long, just going back to the, um, to the sort of the story of, 
of the flight after 9-11 of, of Al-Qaeda and the families. Um, as I spoke to the wives and the children and put this together and spoke to people like Mafuz in, in Mauritania, it became clear that this was all kind of Azama's show, obviously, but, but he didn't really care about the people who were closest to him. So when he went off to Tora Bora, um, he left no to, to prepare the fight against America when the American troops were coming and bombs coming. He made no preparations um, for his wives and children, and they were left behind. This is in sort of November 2001. Left behind in the main Al-Qaeda um, camp, which um, was known about, and, and, and the coordinates were known, and this is, this is from um, some kind of... Uh, it's actually from a trial, but this is obviously a drone strike image. Um, and the place was attacked and uh, destroyed, and the children and the wives and other people... Uh, there was quite significant casualties, but most of them managed to, to get out. Um, this picture was taken um, when they and other senior members of Al-Qaeda decided to leave Afghanistan um, and try and um, seek sanctuary elsewhere in November 2001. Uh, it's not very good quality, but it's kind of passed through many hands before it got to me. Um, <clears throat> this was the route they took to the Pakistan border, and um, travelling in little kind of pilot's trucks, smeared with mud, so they wouldn't be so visible from the, from the air. Um, Fatima's husband, who's pictured here, he was um, involved in getting people across the border into Pakistan. He was killed in an ambush, um, having just got his wife and her, mother, her stepmothers across. Um, killed, well, never seen again. Uh, the ambush happened. His body was never found. Once they were in Pakistan, um, they were very much helped by Hafiz Saeed, who's the head of Lashkar Toiba, Pakistani jihad group, um, who remains very active today, although his organisation is now officially Jamaat Ud-Dawa. Um, he assisted getting them down to the big cities, so, so most of the family and the Shura members went to Karachi, where they were met by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. <clears throat> this is obviously not my picture, this is from Guantanamo. He hadn't been captured yet, and he was, because he was the mastermind of the 9-11 operation and was absolutely delighted with the result, um, because he um, hadn't imagined it would have such an impact and kill so many people. He was um, flailing around and wanting to, to, to do more attacks, and, and I think one of the operations he was trying to put together was to, to hijack a plane leaving Heathrow Airport and then turn it around and crash it back into Heathrow Airport. But one, one of his um, many responsibilities in early 2002 was looking after the family um, who he took to Karachi. And some of them lived in, in one of these houses on, on Clifton, in Clifton, which is one of the nicest parts of Karachi, um, with a view of the sea. Fatima described how she wanted to go out to the beach but was not allowed to leave and, um, because they obviously <laughs> looked like Arabs and they were tall. They didn't speak the local languages. They didn't really know what was going to happen to them. Um, so they just stayed put in the houses and uh, Amal, the youngest wife of Azama, was held, um, was kept in another flat apartment um, in a place called Malia Town, which is such a generic picture of Malia Town. Um, all of this organised by Khalid Mohammed, until he decided to murder Daniel Pearl, right in the middle of all this um, family um, sanctuary finding. Um, at which point, I mean, a terrible tragedy, completely unnecessary death, but at which point Al-Qaeda said... We've got to get these people away from him because he's going to cause. He's going to get them all killed. There, because a lot of obviously CIA people came in um, to look for for the killers and um, and the networks which had led to Daniel Pearl's death. 
Um, and so all of, a lot of houses were raided and um, Azama's family was kind of put back on the run. So where to go? There were not many choices. Um, they were here in, in Karachi. And really, the only other place they couldn't go back to Afghanistan because the war was in full flow. The only other option was to go to Iran, uh, which hadn't had obviously no diplomatic relations with um, the US since 1979. And, uh, and although it was a Shia power, in theory, had a common enemy in America and Israel. Um, so Mahfouz, the Mauritanian, um, went first and went along this road, which is the road to uh, Taftan, which is the only border crossing between Pakistan and, Af- uh, and Iran. And um, that's just a picture of him again. And he went to see um, the person on the right, who is um, Major General Qasem Soleimani, who is the head of what is called the Quds, Quds Force, which is kind of clandestine foreign operations. He is now much more senior. He's very close to um, the supreme leader of Iran, and he is very, very active in the war in Syria, working alongside uh, Bashar al-Assad. Um, he, was, he was personally um, responsible for bringing Putin into the Syrian war. He went to Moscow to make a presentation. But back in 2002, he gave permission for al-Qaeda and Osama's family to come and live in Iran. And um, along with the family, the children and the wives, um, these three um, very key characters were um, in the same batch. The one on the left is Saif al-Adil, who is the head of the military committee of al-Qaeda. And the one in the middle is Abu Muhammad al-Masri, who is... Um, he, these, these three between them put together the, um, the 1998 embassy attacks in Africa. Um, the one in the middle's daughter is married to Hamza bin Laden, and the one on the right, um, Abu Kaya al-Masri, was actually killed in Syria this year uh, because they, they stayed in Iran until 2015, 2016. Um, and then they were taken straight back. To, they were flown directly from, Damas- uh, from Tehran to Damascus to go and assist um, with um, al-Qaeda's efforts in Syria and Iraq, but also to work quite closely still alongside um, the, uh, the Iranian general. That was to who I was talking about before. So once the family were in Iran, um, the relationship was very fraught and went up and down. Um, Sometimes the wives and children, this is not pictures of them, this is a picture I took on a previous trip there, but sometimes the wives and children were allowed to go out on shopping trips and they were, they were escorted by female Iranian intelligence agents um, who um, were similarly dressed. And they had a row once about whether or not um, the Al-Qaeda women could wear the niqab, which is the face veil, which is what they wanted to do. Um, but the, um, the Iranian... Um, lady said, well, you can't do that because you're just going to cause a kerfuffle in the street because we don't wear those here. And so they had a big fight about that and they did eventually go out um, wearing them. Um, I won't go into too much detail about the, sort of the relationship, the, the, the time they spent in Iran other than to say by 2008, <coughs> relations had got quite bitter and, um, and the family of Osama and the Shura members from Al-Qaeda were being held um, locked up in the training, training headquarters for the Quds Force in central Tehran. They were not allowed out at all. They were not allowed any communications um, to family members, um, and everyone was rather upset, particularly um, Saad bin Laden, who was one of Azama's sons, who suffered from very um, severe autism. Um, he 
decided one night that he was going to escape. And these pictures were taken by his sister Fatima just a couple of months before he left. Um, and she gave them to me. Um, she posts them on Facebook quite regularly because she um, is very sad because he died. He, was, he, he made it to Pakistan, um, <clears throat> but was prevented from, from being reunited with his father, who said he didn't want Saad to come to Abbottabad because he was worried that Saad had been, was being tracked or had got something on him. Um, and Saad had picked up on this um, this um, reluctance of his father to, to see him, and he was stuck in Waziristan, uh, which was being attacked by um, drones a lot, and a lot of people were killed. So he wrote this letter. Uh, he wrote two letters, in fact, one to his wife, who was still in Iran, and one to his father, and uh, basically um, like kind of like last will and testimony type letter. And um, because he had nowhere to send it, send them, no way to send the letters, he videoed them on his phone. And this video actually ended up in Abbottabad um, and was recovered by the Navy SEALs and um, brought back to the US. In it, he talks about how he thinks he's going to die. And he did. He was killed in a drone strike uh, a couple of months after writing that letter. <clears throat> Not targeted, just um, happened to be at the wrong place on the wrong day when the drone dropped in 2009. <coughs> Shortly after Saad bin Laden was killed, um, his younger sister, Iman, who was 16 at the time, decided she would take it under her arm and, and she, would, she would escape as well because um, her older brothers didn't want to, they were too frightened. So, and, and also the women were allowed to go shopping occasionally and the men weren't. So she was out shopping in this supermarket with her, her, um, her aunties, the other wives and uh, several other um, sisters and uh, daughters of, of other family members. And um, she, um, she went to the back of the supermarket and found some sort of tr trendy Western sort of Iranian clothes and took off her black abaya and got changed into um, a pair of jeans and a sort of an Iranian chemise skirt, a uh, top, which covers your bum. Um, and she picked up a baby, a life-size baby doll and wrapped it up in, um, in sort of swaddled it in a blanket and walked out the front of the shop. And, um, and the... Uh, the female intelligence agents, the Iranian intelligence agents, didn't realise she'd gone until everyone got back on the bus and there was someone missing. And so Imam then spent um, 100 days in the Saudi embassy in Tehran, trying to negotiate passage out of the country. At which point Zaina, the um, English wife of, um, of Omar, came in and assisted greatly because she understood how how the system worked, and she sort of rang up Tony Blair, and she rang up Amnesty International, and she rang um, UN, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. Anyhow, she kind of hit the phones and um, eventually managed to negotiate um, Imam, for Imam to leave um, Tehran and be reunited with her mother, her mother being the one who had left Osama two days before 9-11, and they um, went to live in Doha. And some of the other family members spent a lot were, were still in Iran much much longer I mean, this, this is Fatima um, actually taken uh, in Jeddah where she lives today um, but she she was one of the last to leave um, Iran she left in 2013 with her husband called Suleiman Abu Gaith who had um, been a cleric a Q, was a Kuwaiti cleric and had been persuaded by Osama to front some of the key videos after the um, 9-11 operation in which they extolled what fantastic job they'd done 
And so, although he was not a fighter and hadn't been actively involved in the operation, his card was absolutely marked. And she and he um, were allowed to leave Iran in 2013 and, um, and, to, and to cross over by a land route into um, Turkey. And the Iranians tipped off um, somebody in Washington and the FBI was waiting for him and um, arrested him. This is, this is, he's on the far left, her husband. Um, this is the kind of the crucial video that was made a couple of days after 9-11 with all the, um, the main figures, Azama Zawahiri and Abu Hafs al-Masri, who was, was the deputy at the time, who, but he was killed in a drone strike, in, um, sorry, killed by an American missile in 2001. This is him again. This, he, so he was, Suleiman Abigail was then put on trial um, in New York um, these pictures were used as exhibits during the trial and um, to show proximity and intent. And he was, uh, this was an artistic an artist's impression taken during the court hearings. Um, and he was duly found guilty and convicted to life imprisonment. And he now lives here in um, Florence Supermax Prison in Colorado. Um, Fatima was left on her own. Um, in Turkey with her, their, their young daughter. Well, the daughter was about four at the time, and she was also, the mother was seven months pregnant. And um, like many bin Ladens, she had no paperwork, no passports. The passports had been taken away from him then when her father had fallen out with the, with the uh, Saudi king in the 90s. So um, she did eventually negotiated to um, have permission. This, this is a kind of laissez-passe um, document to allow her to return to the family in Jeddah and um, she now lives in Jeddah and because, but because she doesn't have a husband because the husband is in prison here um, or, and, but he is still alive she cannot remarry and she and as an un, unsupported woman without a guardian she um, can't leave the family compound and the children can't go to school and um, she can't go to to, um, to hospitals whether we should feel sympathy or not, it's up to people's individual choice. But she has been, um, she wrote to, Islam, uh, to, sorry, to President Obama in January this year so asking for clemency for her husband and whether or not he could possibly serve out, in other documents she says, can he serve out his sentence in his native Kuwait, which um, they left it very late. And this, I think, was about the 8th of January 2017, so... So I don't think anything would have been done about it anyway, but she, she is kind of trying to um, not necessarily be reunited with her husband, but she wants to try and um, have some kind of relationship um, with him again. And this is her with her two children. This picture was taken a, few, a couple of months ago in Jeddah. And um, she actually wants to come and live in America. So if anybody knows how to get her permission to come and live in America, that's what she wants to do, bizarrely. Um, these are her kids, and I just included these pictures because, I guess, just to say that the kind of third generation of innocent people have been affected. So, not I'm not showing sympathy, but but there are victims on both sides. This is this is the son who's never seen his dad because he was born after his father was um, brought to the U.S. Um, and just to finish on, on kind of like where is Al-Qaeda now, I mean, th this is Saif al-Adil, uh, a more recent picture, not my picture, but um, so he was the head of the military council who spent more than a decade, nearly 15 years in, in Iran. And he, um, 
He was eventually released by the Iranians in 2016 and um, went straight to Syria, as I say, was um, put on a plane from, from Tehran and um, is now working, not fighting, he's too old for fighting, but he's now working um, with Jabhat Fatah al-Sham, uh, which is the, the Al-Qaeda affiliate in, Iran, in um, Syria and Iraq. So he's back to playing a very active role and um, helped and facilitated by the Iranians who allowed him over 15 years to, to, to re- work to regroup Al-Qaeda, um, to, to set up a funding pipeline and a recruiting pipeline which went through Iran and still does, which is very well documented by the US State Department. Um, so he is, he is still, thanks to the Iranians, a very um, active um, person and senior person in Al-Qaeda today. His friend and colleague, um, who I mentioned being the three people together, Abu Akher al-Masri, he was killed in uh, Idlib in a missile strike in February, I think, this year. But the other, the third man is still active and in, um, in Syria at the moment. And... Um, not in Syria, but, but the one that everyone talks about most is, is Hamza. So the one, the boy on the left, that's his younger brother, half-brother, Larden on the right, who was the little one who lost his mum, who now lives in Doha. Um, Hamza is, um, I think, believe he lives in Karachi now. Um, he is with his wife, who's just had a baby. Um, his um, sister, Fatima, talks to him. Uh, but she doesn't know exactly where he is. Um, and he is being touted as um, the next generation of Al-Qaeda. This is a picture of when he was a kid. I mean, there are no pictures of him now as an adult. But this picture was taken with him with uh, Mafuz, the Mauritanian guy on the right, sorting out his microphone. Um, this was in Kandahar prior to 9-11. Um, but he is now fronting Al-Qaeda's videos. Not videos, sorry. They make videos. You only hear his voice. Uh, but he, he is the kind of, he's the face, the figurehead. Um, <coughs> his sister, Fatima, says she doesn't believe that he necessarily believes in what he says, that, that, the, that the words that are spoken by him are written by Ayman Zawahiri, who is the head of Al-Qaeda, but we can't prove one way or the other. Um, but, um, I mean, his latest pronouncements were to encourage lone wolf attacks in the West, and his kind of rallying cry is, we are all Azama, and... Um, I guess until people like him are silenced or persuaded to stop doing what they're doing, um, we will see more attacks like the, one, uh, the ones that happened in London and Paris today because um, I mean, most of these people have no connection to Al-Qaeda or, or to Islamic State uh, personally, the guys who do these attacks. Um, but they are inspired by this kind of stuff, so Hamza has a very significant role and responsibility here whatever his um, sister might think of him. I think that's enough. Yes, but I didn't, I didn't want to go into that because there's been an, a, a brilliant and excellent book written already called Looming Tower by Lawrence Wright. And he went into that in great detail um, and did a fantastic job. So there was, there was no point in me trying to emulate that. So, yes, I mean, his, his mother was, um, is still alive um, and she lives mainly in Paris, actually. 
Um, she's called Alia and she is from um, Syria, from Latakia originally. His father was Mohammed bin Laden, who was one of the wealthiest, originally from Yemen, and, um, and walked as a young man into Saudi Arabia and managed um, through um, guile and ability to um, get very close to the Saudi royal family and become a major building contractor in Saudi Arabia. And, and in fact, the Saudi bin Laden Corporation um, has most of the contracts to, to look after Mecca, so they have quite a lot of responsibility for cranes falling down. Um, but, and they are falling out, apparently, with the current um, Deputy Crown Prince, but his father was killed in a plane crash in the 80s? I can't remember the date. Lawrence Wright's book has got lots and lots of information. So I think the, it's remarkable that you've got such access to all these people. Um, First of all, do you speak Arabic or nope. to translators, I guess? I always work with, with local journalists and translators. Arabic. Right, right, right. right. So, Who um, are brilliant and fantastic. So did it take quite a while for you to be able to work things so you got access yeah. to these people? Yes, I mean, it was, a, it was a very slow process. I mean, the idea for the book started at the point when Azama was killed and the wives were taken into Pakistani custody. And my previous and my writing partner's previous experience was mainly in Pakistan. We'd worked there for 20 years. So we had to kind of go on a big learning curve and a big information dump and make a lot of new contacts to try and kind of move out of the Pakistani part of the story, which is also very interesting, but I haven't got time to go into it now. Uh, but it's in the book. Um, to get to the kind of the Arab world and, and the Al-Qaeda people who were still accessible but, for example, the uh, Mauritanian, uh, Mafuz, we I first approached, he was really, he escaped in 2012, and I think I managed to, to persuade him to see me in 2014. And getting to him was kind of like a huge, um, huge bridge to cross, because once people knew that I'd met him and he'd spent quite a lot of time with me, um, that then gave me brownie points, I guess, mm -hmm. to get other people to talk. It seems all the more remarkable because I would think that there would be a lot of, you know, institutional barriers to letting you know journalists talk to these people. You know, I imagine intelligence services wouldn't want it. Not only those countries, but probably Western intelligence services yep. and the diplomats and the bureaucrats and so on. So, well, I suppose as a journalist, you can kind of like slightly slip between the cracks, though, because because there were attempts to get him to um, give evidence in the trial of Suleiman Abugaith and um, and his, and Suleiman Abugaith's lawyer from New York, Stanley Cohen, very famous character. He um, was prevented from going to Mauritania somehow to go and get evidence from him. So he was told he couldn't have a visa or something. But, I mean, Mafuz was, was in, interviewed for over a four-day period by a delegation from the U.S. Embassy and some people came from Washington. And he tells an account of that, which, I mean, he's kind of gloating that he didn't give him any information. So... But, um, but yeah, I mean, but in, in Mauritania, he's, he's kind of a national hero, to be honest. And he, he drives about and does his thing and speaks in the local mosque. Did, if you forgive me for asking, did you have to pay any bribes to get access no. to these people? No, no, I couldn't do that. That would completely compromise what I was doing. Quite a few of them asked. Yeah. <laughs> I paid the translators and, and paid the local journalists to work with me um, because they, I couldn't have done it without them. Um, and they are brilliant and they're credited in the book. But um, no, I couldn't have done that. 
So could you repeat for us uh, what was the primary motivation for doing this group? To, um, to try and find out how Al-Qaeda and bin Laden's family actually thought, to try and get the story from the inside, which is impossible to do completely because, because these people are never going to, some people are never going to tell you the truth about everything. But um, I just thought there have been so many books written. I mean, the Lawrence Wright book is the best one, I think. Um, but there have been so many books written from the Western perspective about Al-Qaeda, but there was not that much about from Al-Qaeda. And, and, and so then... What did you want to know? What did I want to know? What did you, what did you want to know that others I wanted to know what motivated them to what, why why what, why did they want to do this? Why did they want to attack the West? What is it that, that that makes them compels them to to continue to to promote jihad and terrorism today? Because I think until you can start to not necessarily engage with them, but until you can understand their perspective um, and see the world within from within their eyes. I don't think you can ever move forward. I'm not suggesting we should support them or accept their, their views, but I feel that, that it, it's, it's a, a worthwhile exercise. That's a really complicated, that's a really good question. Um, yes, I, I think, well, in a very simplistic form, I mean, the main thing that, that, that compels them is Palestine. Um, and, and the wrong they feel that's been done to Palestinian people. Um, Palestine. Palestine is the primary um, example of, of, of what the first thing they'll cite. I mean, the world has moved on a lot since then, but it all goes back to Palestine. That's their main gripe originally, and the West, and particularly America's reluctance to, um, to intervene, to create, what well, I'm not getting into it, two-state solution, whatever. Um, but I think... The, the horrible thing that I concluded at the end is, is that this is a business for them, particularly for the guys in, in, in Jordan. And it's all about, and that's why they talk, talked to me, it's all about promoting themselves. They're in this for kind of the long term. They can't do anything else. I mean, this, they've been doing this for their whole lives. I mean, unless, and unless they get out there and they promote their view um, and they... Um, they won't, they won't get um, um, recruits, they won't get uh, funding, they'll be eclipsed. I mean, you've seen the, the battle between Al-Qaeda and Islamic State for sort of who's got the supremacy in Iraq and, and Syria. Um, it's, it's business, which is horrible. So let me see if I understand what you're saying. In the context of 21st century mass communication, it is a competition to get your... Yeah, that's why Hamza is being used. So all this money that's been spent is just to stifle his brain. So that I don't really understand that point. It's a lot of money being spent in Western countries. Yeah. Fighting these groups. Yeah. And these groups keep reemerging. Yes. And using today's technology. Yes. If I'm understanding you correctly, then it's all about brain. Yes. All about General Motors' brand versus the British brand yeah. versus the Irish brand, and on and on and on. It is, and I mean, like you look at you look at the attacks in 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 London and Manchester and Paris, 
<clears throat> first out of the box to, to um, claim them is Islamic State. And one of the guys who um, attacked, um, that did the London attacks two, three days ago, um, I interviewed him for a documentary we made about him and his group about four years ago now. And uh, he's got nothing to do... I mean, he, he is now dead and committed a heinous act, <coughs> yet another one. But he had nothing to do with the Islamic State whatsoever. He was part of a kind of pro-Pakistani Kashmiri group who were just like troublemakers in England. But, um, but every time someone does something and commits, commits an atrocity, everyone wants to claim it. That's why, that's why Al-Qaeda became so famous and so rich after 9-11, because... Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who wasn't in Al-Qaeda, he was like a freelance kind of um, despotic murderer. Um, he, he, he drew Osama bin Laden's eye to something that, that could potentially be spectacular because, according to everyone who knew him, Osama bin Laden was very easily led and not particularly intelligent, but loved cameras and fame and attention. I mean, look at the video that was found in Abbottabad of him watching himself on TV. Um, it's, it's, um, what's it saying? Um, but yes, it's, 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 I mean, it's, I'm, I'm probably simplifying it too much. I mean, it's not just about attention. It is, it is about wanting to pu- pu- push their particular point of view. And that point of view has changed over the years. Palestine's still always there in the background. It's complicated. I think it's very complicated. Maybe I haven't got an exact, exact answer, but I feel I have a little bit more understanding, which I think is the best I could hope for. Does that kind of answer your question? No? Well, it's never it's simple as it seems. No, no. There are always different motivations, different initiatives, and they conflict. And they they align, then they realign. We made them into days, your friend next week, and yeah. six months down the road, you know, your friends again, depending upon what's expedient at that time. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think we, we quite often forget in the West that it's not just the West that is being attacked and suffering. I don't know if anyone saw the amazing report on CNN this morning about um, civilians in Mosul being killed by Islamic State. It was really shocking. Uh, just kind of footage with America, a group of Americans actually going into to, to ex-forces, I think, going in to save people from like massacre sites where everybody's dead, apart from one person who's pulled out on a rope. I mean, this is Islamic State. I mean, they, they are a total death cult. I mean, they have no, as far as I can tell, and my book isn't about them, uh, they have no um, particular end goal apart from Armageddon. But they all want to go out in a blaze of glory as well. Hello. Sure. Actually, too. Fascinating about the uh, Iranian link mm-hmm. to this. I wanted to ask more about this. You, you talked about their going when one of them was moved by Suleimani to Damascus to work with Al Qaeda. Uh, I want to find out if you can elaborate more on that. Because my, what I have seen so far is is that in, um, in Syria, at least the impression I'm, I'm getting from that country is not that, that the Iranian Quds uh, force in there are having the problems with some of these political groups. Uh, that are they are having problems, you're saying? Yes. Yes, yes. I mean, it's, 
it's it's very complicated um, that they can assist. I mean, I, I found it very difficult to get my head around this um, right from the beginning of, of establishing that the Iranian, the Iranian military authorities had assisted al-Qaeda and the families. I couldn't quite work out why, and, and I asked Mahfouz about it because he negotiated this safe haven directly with um, Soleimani. And he said, well, we were, we were A... <clears throat> we had common common ground because they'd worked together previously. So in '95, um, Saif al Adil, who was one of the guys, and Mahfouz went to um, Tehran to um, negotiate for Al Qaeda to get training from Hezbollah in the Beka Valley. I don't know whether that actually fo- followed through and happened, but I mean there were there were existing connections, and the common ground was was America and Israel, anti anti America and Israel. And, and, and the other thing that Mahfouz said was, was he felt that, that they... Um, I'm obviously talking about earlier times. I'll get to your point in a minute. He felt that, um, that the, Iranians, uh, the Iranian intelligence people and the Quds <coughs> Force people felt that it was better to know where al-Qaeda was and to have them under their roof rather than be attacked by them. And at, some, I mean, at one point, they, they, they were offered to, um, to the Bush administration. The Iranian authorities made a back-channel offer to hand them over, the family and the, and the military council members in 2003, and that offer was not taken up. Um, but in terms of what's happening today in Syria, I mean, yes, that the different groups are, are fighting each other. So Al-Qaeda is fighting Islamic State, um, or Jabhat Fattah al-Sham is fighting different um, Islamic State groups. Um, and... Um, and, um, and, and the, the Quds Force have got um, Hezbollah in there and the, the, the Russians were in there until recently. Um, it's really... I, I had a long chat with um, Hussaifa Azam, who's the son of Abdullah Azam, who has spent a lot of time, he says, fighting in Syria. And he, he tried to explain to me there are a thousand different affiliations and, um, and people swap sides on, on a daily basis. I mean, it's a complete and utter mess. Because they are, they're more seasoned. I mean, they're the kind of granddaddies, aren't they? They've been at this since, since the 80s. And I think it really is, it is down to kind of age and experience and having made mistakes in the past. I mean, MacDesey is very much in the forefront of that. And he, but he's also a tricky person to talk to because one time when I met him, he was saying, oh, Islamic State's finished. I mean, he's Al-Qaeda man. Islamic State's finished. Um, uh, you'll see that we'll take all the territory. Blah, blah. And then the next time I went to see him about two months later, he said Islamic State has never been stronger. But, I mean, behind the scenes, there's also some rapprochement going on between the, those two larger groups. So at certain times, um, they're trying to do deals as well. But, yes, you're absolutely right. They, they, are, they come at it from a very different agenda. It's kind of the young guys, disaffected guys on the block, compared to 
the old men who don't really want to pick up the gun anymore. They just want to talk about it and get someone else to do it for them. Uh, kind of right now, Syria is more like Jabhat al Nusra is not. Yes, Jabhat is. Yes, yes, yes. They and and but but I think they're very aware. Al and then and then there's kind of like the double complication because you have the local group, the affiliate there, and then you have Sarahiri, sort of running the official show um, at an undisclosed location. Um, I think he's in Iran still. He, he went to Iran, and I think he's there still. Um, but he's, he's also aware of the fact that, that the old man syndrome, that no one really wants to kind of follow. He's worried about his supporters because they're all running off to join Islamic State because it's much more romantic to join Islamic State. Do Iran? I don't know for certain, but that's what certain key people hinted at. Zahidan. Mm-hmm. Just one minute, there's someone at the back. Oh, yeah, sorry, you said that they've been uh, fighting since the 80s, so Al-Qaeda is Al-Qaeda. Well, Al-Qaeda, I'm, I'm talking, I'm saying the start point is 1988. Yes, people who were in Al-Qaeda were fighting from before that. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah. From, from the Soviet war. But officially fighting under the label of, of the base Al-Qaeda was... 88 onwards, but they're kind of third generation now, aren't they? Islamic State is kind of second generation, third, second, third generation to them. Yes. Yes. Funded by America and Britain and Saudi Arabia and trained by them. Trained by Hamid Ghul, the guy from the ISI. So it was a, it was an experiment, no, wrong word. It was a, um, it was an initiative against the Soviet Union, which then went horribly wrong. Because, I mean, over the years I've worked in Pakistan, I mean, the, repeatedly the, the, the point is made that the, at the end of the Soviet war, all these armies of young men who either left their own countries or were Pakistani or they come from Saudi Arabia, they couldn't go home and, so, and they couldn't do anything else. So what are they going to do? They need something else to fight. And that's where al-Qaeda came into being was in Peshawar in, in the late 80s, where there's all these guys wandering around looking for, for a new challenge. They can't go, and sort of go back to Jeddah and start working in a furniture store. They've lost their, identi- their, uh, their identity documents. They can't go home. They're wanted at home, so they... That's a complicated whole other book, which has been written by other people much better than I could do. Okay, this will be the last question, because we want you to sign. Okay, can we have the lady? <laughs> Please. Yes. <laughs> I'm just curious, were the women politicized at all, or were they just pawns? Um, you're talking about the, well, the wives of, of Azama, and, I mean, they weren't all the same, and, and I didn't get access to all of them in the same way. I mean, his... his his first wife, Najwa, had, um, had um, left him and was, was, came from a very old Syrian family and was very, from a sophisticated background, um, but very loyal to him. Um, but, I mean, she was completely abhorrent, abhorred what he did all the way through, and, but hung on because of her children. She had a lot of very young children and, and didn't want to have to leave them behind, which in the end she did do, um, because he just said, well, they're not going back with you, they're staying here just before the, the, um, the American attacks on, on Afghanistan. 
I mean, his oldest wife, who eldest in age, uh, Kyria, who is the mother of Hamza, she um, she didn't really want to talk to me very much, but she um, she is, um, I'd say, she's the most radical of of the wives in that she she will go on about Palestine and she helped him write his speeches and had discussions with him, not not on Al Qaeda policy because she's a wife, and in that in that kind of society, particularly the extreme version that Azama preached. I mean, wives are just subservient. But I think she, she was um, the most um, supportive of his um, ideals. And his youngest wife, Amal, the one who, who, whose brother I initially met, she, she kind of just had babies, really. Um, she didn't really have any strong views about anything he'd done. And kind of, I mean, there is a bit of that kind of hiding behind the sort of, well, I was just looking after the children, I don't know anything about it. It all happened in another room. But um, does that kind of answer your question? Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming. Uh, there are plenty of books out there. I mean, you can come back and Kathy will sit there and sign. Oh, I think we were going to say I'd, I'd sit out you there. Sit out there with Might as well stick okay. with the books, it's easier. Okay, thank you very much for coming. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.